As we look at our passage today, like I prayed, we are going to read a number of passages. And this is why, if you think about times in your life where you might start anticipating the future. So maybe someone passes away, maybe you're getting older, something like this happens. So like maybe this week with Marilyn, you start saying, I wonder what heaven is going to be like, you know? I wonder what it's going to be like. And, and maybe you even take the time and you, you look at a few scriptures in the Bible and you say, what does the Bible really say about heaven? And maybe you kind of read those over. Maybe you get really into it and maybe even buy a book on heaven and what heaven might be like. And maybe you would read that and, you know, kind of anticipate what might be there in the future for all of us. Well, as we come to Acts chapter 2 and we start here as we continue on in Acts chapter 2, we are going to see the culmination of something that Israel has been anticipating for a long time. It happened at the beginning of Acts 2. And now we, as the church, we are looking at it trying to determine what actually kind of happened. Okay? So we're going to start out by looking at what Israel would have been anticipating to happen. Then we're going to look at what happened, and we are going to try to fit the two together. And you know what? It seems like that sounds very easy. It seems like what we should be doing is we're going to read a bunch of passages in the Old Testament. They're going to say one thing. We're going to read the passage in the New Testament and Acts, and we're going to say, yep, there it is. It's fulfilled. This is clear. Surely everyone's going to agree on this. Of course not. You know, this is not how it goes. It's going to be slightly more complicated than that. But I think by taking the time and reading what all Israel might have been anticipating with this coming of the Spirit will better understand what they were going through and better be able to understand what we might think when we look at this fulfillment of these prophecies. So I'm going to start way back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, verse 22. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, It is not your for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. So I'm doing this for me, not for you, okay? Which you have profaned among the nations which you came. So how did Israel do among the nations? Not so well, right? They did not have a really good history of doing what was right. So he says, I'm not doing this because you're so awesome. I'm doing this because I'm awesome. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, and through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So Israel is going to be a tool for which God is going to use to vindicate his own holiness. And of course, when you're perfectly holy, who's the only one that can vindicate your own holiness? You. It's, a, it's an interesting kind of situation that God has to vindicate his own holiness because no one else would be capable so he says, I'm going to use you to do this. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your land. So if you're an Israelite, you're reading this. And let's say you're not reading it way back when Ezekiel said it or, or when it got written down. You're reading it many, many years later, coming up to the time of Jesus. You're reading this and say, I am anticipating that one day God, for his sake, not for ours, is going to take us from the nations. He's going to gather us from all countries because they're you know, dispersed at this time in Israel's history when this was written. I'm going to bring you into your own land. We're all going to come back to Israel together. That's what you're thinking is going to happen. I will sprinkle clean water on you 
and you shall be clean from your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and I will and a new spirit I will put within you. This is starting to sound a little bit familiar, right? Jesus promised the helper would come. The helper comes. It's the spirit. This isn't exactly something totally new that Jesus was promising them. They knew all the way back from Ezekiel that someday there would be the spirit that would come and I'll put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a new heart. And I will put my spirit within you this is probably a reference to the Holy Spirit. The ESV translation even capitalizes the word spirit. They're confident it's referring to the Holy Spirit, so they made the choice to capitalize it. Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Once again, it's not too hard to connect well, we're going to have the Holy Spirit's coming. We're not going to have hearts of stone. We're going to have hearts of flesh. But it does get a little bit more confusing when he also says things like, and you will dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. What's the land that he gave their fathers? From the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. So it's probably the Nile. And Israel has never owned all of that land ever. Like in the history, even biblical history, they've never had all that land. Not even close right now. So after World War II, when Israel is reestablished, there's like not even, it's not even close. So if you're a pre-Israelite and you're around the time of Jesus, you're still waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. You're also still waiting for you to be gathered together and put in the land of your fathers. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine on you. So not only do they get the land, not only get the spirit, they're never going to have to worry about hunger again, which of course is a much bigger deal to them than it is to us. I've mentioned that many times. I will make the fruit of the tree and increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer disgrace of famine among the nations. To imagine in those times to say famine's never going to be a problem again. We live in special times that we never have to worry about famine. But to them, this is a very, very big deal. Then you will remember our evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I act, declares the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Okay, so we know one thing that they're anticipating is that the Spirit's coming. They're not going to have hearts of stone. They're going to have hearts of flesh, but it's still tied in, tied in with this land idea. Okay? Let me read another Old Testament passage. You've got to stay with me here. We're going to read a lot of Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So also, you're an Israelite, you're at the time of Jesus, you're anticipating that someday God's going to make this new covenant with the house of Israel. Right? So, New covenant, what's going to happen in the new covenant? Well, based on what, if you already knew in Ezekiel before, you'd be like, okay, well, I know the new covenant will probably come along with the Holy Spirit and, and the, the heart of flesh and so on and so forth, but this new covenant's coming. Not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them to the land to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And what was the covenant that God made with Israel when they went to the, came out of the land of Egypt and went to Mount Sinai? It was the Mosaic Covenant. 
And of course, the Mosaic Covenant was, if you're good, I'll bless you. If you're bad, I'll smash you. That's how this goes. But I will bring out a land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So there's going to be a different kind of covenant. This is not going to be the Mosaic Covenant anymore. It is going to be different. And it's going to be like in a different and major way. Declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So once again, this emphasis on the heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So it would make sense to be like, okay, the new covenant's coming. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And when the Holy Spirit's going to come, the law is going to be written on the heart because the Holy Spirit will be indwelling. This all, this fits together fairly good. All right. But this is where it starts getting a little hazy. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. I mean, this really sounds like I'm out of a job at this point, right? We don't need teachers anymore. Cool. Okay. So this new covenant is going to include things like related to the heart, which seems to make good sense to us. But when it starts talking about no longer each teaching his neighbor and his brother, that, you know... I don't know. That doesn't maybe seem like it's quite as clear. But they are anticipating this new covenant. So all the people of Israel are like, when's the new covenant coming? When's it coming? When's it coming? When's it coming? You know, we're going to have, we're never going to have to worry about famine again. We're going to have our land. We're going to have this heart thing going on. That probably was a little hazy to them, right? They probably understood the land and food thing a lot better. So we're going to look at one more passage in Numbers. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, see, Father's Day. Dad, twice here. Boom, Father's Day sermon. And the Spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. So this is during the time of Moses. So, so Moses is the main prophet, and there's these other two people prophesying. And the young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad, they're prophesying in the camp. They're telling, they're tattling, right? Oh, these two guys, they're prophesying. You're the big hoofed prophet, you know. Why... Maybe we should be doing something about this. And Joshua, the son of Nun, assistant to Moses from his youth, said, so they get to Joshua. Apparently, they don't make it to Moses. My Lord, Moses, stop them. So they are in Moses' presence. Moses hears it. Joshua says, we got to stop this. We can't just let any old yokel be prophesying. This is no good. And Moses' response is, but Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? I mean, like, are you jealous for me? Like, you're saying I need to be the big only guy that can do it? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? Wouldn't it be great if one day everybody had the spirit and everybody might have the gift of prophecy? And once again, this is anticipating the future. Maybe one day. Now Moses is earlier than Ezekiel and Jeremiah, but even he sort of insinuates that maybe there's going to be this day in which the Spirit comes on everybody else. And so Acts 2 seems to be that time. And so we are now going to act, look through 
Acts 2. And as we start here in verse 14, we want to keep in our minds what the people of Israel would be anticipating. First thing I'd like to think, think of before we start here is, do you think based on those passages we read that anyone in the, while this was going on in Acts 2, thought the Gentiles were going to have anything to do with this? Nope. The Old Testament does not seem to indicate, and maybe I could find some other prophecies that sort of more insinuated the Gentiles would be a part of it, but for the most likely, Israel's probably not thinking the Gentiles are going to have anything to do with this. And they're also likely thinking something more like, the land has got to be a part of this, right? Like, when do we get the land back? When's the land coming, right? Like, you know, got the Romans here, a little oppressive, wouldn't mind having this. And all the way down, if we go to the River Nile, that's quite a bit. I mean, let's get that thing going on, right? Land is food, land is money, especially back then. So this is what's in their mind. So we start a speech, but Peter standing with the 11, there's a many, many speeches in Acts. I mentioned it in the introduction to this passage, and this is another one. But Peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now, when he says lifted up his voice and he addressed them, when he's addressed them, this always is used. This word addressed is always used to talk about spirit-filled utterance. So he's speaking something from God and he starts out men of Judea. Now, this is another sort of example of when he says men of Judea, do we think he means men and women or just the men? He definitely almost surely means the men and women. He means both. And so some translations might say people of Judea or fellow believers of Judea or something like that, right? So we don't want to be confused. He's talking to both men and women. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, he picks out Jerusalem specifically, you know, big events have just happened there with Jesus. So he mentioned that, but it seems like he's talking about all of Judah. He gives this introduction. Listen to what I'm going to say. He says, for these people are not drunk. Remember from last week, they were being accused of drunk, being drunk. As suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, which would probably be about 9 a.m. And actually today, it wouldn't be super hard to get drunk by 9 a.m., right? I mean, you get a few shots of whatever, and, you know, just hammer those down, and you're smashed, right? It doesn't take really long to get drunk today. But almost surely, the way that they had alcohol back then, you had to work at it a bit harder back then to get drunk. So you could, but you'd probably have to drink all day to get drunk. So the whole 9 a.m. thing, while it means something to us today, is even more meaningful to them. Because they would have had to get up very, very early in the morning and start putting it down in order to have it to where they were drunk by 9 a.m. As a matter of fact, back then, they all usually mixed their alcohol with water. They kind of mixed together, so it was probably even a little bit more diluted. And once again, you could certainly get drunk, but you had to work at it. You had to work at it. They would even talk about, we have references to only the barbarians don't you know, drink unmixed wine. Only just the worst of the worst people only drink unmixed wine. So usually what they drank was a little bit more diluted. So he says, hey, guys, it's only like 9 a.m., you know, third hour, sunrise is probably what they mean. So three hours after sunrise, so 9 a.m., you know, they're not drunk. But this, what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Yes! How many series on the book of Joel have you ever seen? 
Almost none. Finally, we get a mention here. Okay, yes. And unfortunately, we're going to find out quickly why you've never done a series on the book of Joel. Let me read a quote from a guy named Daryl Bach. He says, it is hard to know how literally to take the Joel imagery in Luke Acts. So it's hard to know how literally to take this quote from Joel, considering that the initial reference in Joel 2 is describing the effect that an incoming locust plague had for those present during the plague in Joel's time. So this passage that's being quoted from Joel is originally in the context of a locust plague. I'm sure that would be a really good study. Sunday school classes, locust plagues, this is going to be good. Get, get on that book of Joel. So then this passage is quoted, but clearly when they quote it, they are not talking about the locust plague anymore. They are talking about what this, it's like, it's, hard, it's like, are they saying that the locust plague had like a double meaning? Like it did mean the locust plague, but maybe it also meant this other thing. It was challenging, right? So let's read it. It says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay. This is sounding like if this is a reference today, this is sounding pretty clear. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is what happens here in Acts chapter 2. The spirit comes. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. This actually makes good sense too. Prophesy is often uh, uh, related to speaking in tongues. As a matter of fact, you know, sometimes the, depending on when the translation happens, those two things are kind of in, interchangeable. So this could be a direct reference to what just happened on the speaking in tongues. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. This seems to be going quite well, this connection between this Joel quote and what just happened. Now, it's important to note here, I think anyway, that it's sons and daughters. This is men and women. You know, This is old and young. And then in the next verse we'll see it's the, both the downtrodden and those who have. So everyone is included. And of course, to the surprise of some of the people, everyone doesn't just include Jewish women and Jewish old men and Jewish young people but it's also going to include Gentiles as well. Even on my ma male servants and female servants in those days, so it includes these, the, the servants, so that even the poor, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So now, in the Old Testament, people would be filled with the spirit, right? Sometimes people use Saul as the example. If you think back to the story of Saul and I, Maybe I should have quoted the passage, but Saul seemed to be following God. He was a king back in Israel, and then when he wasn't anymore, it says the spirit left him. It would come and go. You would have these special spirit empowerments in the Old Testament, but it never seemed like there was anybody in the Old Testament that had sort of a permanent indwelling. And so now we're going to have something permanent, and everyone is going to have it. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. I'm still with this could this isn't too hard to connect with what just happened even you know I'm you know get, maybe it's a little colorful but I'm you know I'm still with it then it starts getting a little harder blood and fire and vapor of smoke I don't think there was blood and fire in any vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes 
the great and magnificent day. Once again, it doesn't seem like this is happening here. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, that seems to be a little bit more applicable applicable to the present. So let me give you three options. You all love the options, don't you? Don't tell me otherwise because I'm going to keep giving them to you. Some people will say it works like this. None of this is happening that's being referenced in Joel 2. What we're doing is we're referencing Joel 2 as an illustration. Joel 2 happens. It's at, maybe it's prophetic and maybe sometime in the future that's going to happen. But the only reason that Peter is actually quoting it here is not to say this is being fulfilled. He's just using it as an illustration. So therefore, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies aren't happening here because guess who the Old Testament prophecies are given to? Israel, clearly Israel. And this is clearly the church. And so some might say, no, these Old Testament prophecies aren't coming to the church right now. These are just you being used as an illustration. And where really they're going to be fulfilled is in the future in the millennial kingdom. Here's another option for you. Some would say everything in the Old Testament that was prophesied pretty much. I mean, I don't want to, I could probably bring that bit prod brush. But it's kind of a very simplified way to say all that was promised to the Old Testament, to Israel, is all being completely transferred to the church, and the church gets all the promises totally. It's like the opposite, right? It's amazing, like the total opposite. So you say, so what about these things that don't seem like they're coming, the blood, or whatever, whatever, whatever? It's like, those are very metaphorical, okay? Those are metaphorical. Even owning the land is like metaphorical. So it says you're gonna, they're going to own the land, and, they, and then you come and you realize, well, actually, you're not really going to own the land. That's, that's kind of a metaphor. Okay, I'm going to say, saying some things are metaphors is not like crazy or anything. I mean, you know, I mean, that you could see how this kind of language, when you're talking, when you're kind of using language that was used for a locust plague, essentially, and you're kind of borrowing it for this, it's not too hard to kind of see how you could see it as a metaphor. Okay, this would mean that everything promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those promises the Abraham, everything that has to do with the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and all the other covenants all come to the church. We have all of them, but in some sort of spiritual way. Because we obviously don't care about whether we're being fed or not. So you might say something like this. Well, that's not being fed like you're hungry fed. That might be spiritual food or something like that. Okay? So that's another way to look at this. That way would be if you want the fancy word, it's like the covenant theology way to look at it. The first one I gave you is dispensational way to look at it. And then there's the third option. And this is the option I take. So I think it's really, really hard to say that none of the things promised in the Old Testament took place here. I mean, there's some, you know, the whole, the Spirit's coming. I mean, the Spirit came. You know, like how much more direct we need to get here. So I tend to not think that it can only be an illustration. It seems to be more of a direct fulfillment of some of these old prophecies. And, and it's not just in Acts 2. First Corinthians, you know, when every time we take communion, we say what? This is the new covenant in my blood. 
When, when was the new covenant given or first mentioned? Jeremiah 31. Who was it given it to? Israel. Yet every time we take communion, we say, this is the new covenant of my blood. So to say, we're not part of that at all. None of that's, none of that's happened yet. That's all in the future. I don't think that can be. I think that some of the prophecies that have been given in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came. But I don't think they've all been fulfilled. Okay? I don't think they've all been fulfilled. Think of it this way. In the Old Testament, when they promised Jesus would come, would it have been clear by reading the Old Testament that Jesus was going to come two separate times, that the Messiah would come twice? So he's came already, but then he's coming back again, right? If you read the Old Testament prophecies, would it have been obvious, like, oh yeah, there's going to be two, two, right? No, actually, there's two, there is two, and they're separated by like a huge gap of time. And it would not have been clear. So I think it works like this. I think that the church starting did fulfill some of them. They're already happened, but not yet all of them. So has Jesus already come? Yeah, he already came. But is it true to say Jesus has not yet come? Yes, the second coming hasn't happened yet. So he already came, but he hasn't yet come again. And so I think the prophecies, some of these in the Old Testament prophecies, some of them have already happened. They've already been fulfilled. But I think some of them have not yet been fulfilled. That's how I would understand it. But you can see the other two ways are not like silly, in my opinion. They are understandable, logical ways to look at it. And you may look at it however you would like. He continues on. In, his pa in the passage, and I was going to cover them today, but I probably have at least 20 minutes more of material, so I think we better stop right here. And I will make this particular application. You know, we have the Holy Spirit in us today, and they didn't have that in the Old Testament. And our access to God's power to have that heart of flesh and not have the heart of stone is greater than what they had access to in the Old Testament. And I just would like us to think this morning that whether we are tapping into that Holy Spirit enablement to have the heart of flesh. You know, the world beats us. The experiences in life make it easy to have a hard heart. You know, I, I think of the girl who has the boyfriend who's perfectly good and goes on and so on and so forth and gets married to the first person she ever dates. And, and she sort of has this one view of love and marriage and, and how it all works. And then you have another girl that marries, dates someone, and he beats her up or leaves her or cheats on her or whatever. And then she dates the next, and then it happens again and, and again and again. And that, what, what happens to that, that heart? Oh, man. Hard to do anything but really start hating the guys, right? Hard to do anything but start hating the guys. But then you have the other girl that, no, oh, it all worked great. You know, marriage was wonderful, worked out for me. And I think as we go along in our life, we have things that happen to us. And it's easy to just harden, harden. I'm not going to get hurt. 
I'm not going to let anyone hurt me. And guess how I'm going to keep from anyone hurting me? I am never going to just open up at all. I am just, I am just, ugh. You will never get me. I've been got before. I've been got before. And sometimes that hardness even comes with our relationship with God. And, you know, we, our spouses and our friends may, may well, they're going to disappoint us. Our pastors are going to disappoint us. Our, our favorite famous preacher is going to disappoint us someday. But we can have that softness of heart in our relationship with God. He will not disappoint us. He will not disappoint us. I just pray that we would tap into that Holy Spirit power to be able to have a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We just thank you so much for this text that we read. We just pray that as we think about what you gave us when you brought the Holy Spirit to us, the, the, the power you gave the church. And Lord, we've seen it. We've seen it be successful throughout the world. We know there are Christians everywhere. But Lord, I just pray here in our lives that we would tap into it as well. That we would use it to, to not have a heart of stone. We would allow ourselves to have a heart of flesh. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.